The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, this morning we are going to look at a word um, that is kind of odd to pronounce if you look it up there because those are the, the Greek letters. It's Kowobia. That's actually not what it is. Um, it's koinonia, and we're going to talk about what that means, but I thought we would do it in English. Um, the, the word is fellowship, really, and we're going to look at its use in, in one verse in Philippians, because that verse speaks of kind of an overlooked aspect of, of fellowship, but then we'll look throughout the New Testament. I, I just finished a course on the theology and practice of fellowship, and it's been on my mind and in my heart, and so I'm glad we have the chance to unpack it together. Now, when I grew up, fellowship was a, was a hall out behind the church house. Anybody remember that? Yeah, and when we would go to the fellowship hall, we'd go there and have a what? Meal, but we would call it a fellowship, whatever that is. Sometimes we'd play games together. And even in the text we're going to look at, they changed the word in modern English translations from fellowship to partnership because we've really lost a sense of what fellowship means. For instance, girls from UMHB. This week, Christian ministry majors will surround you like sharks. And they will look at you and decide if you are potential appropriate pastor's wives. And they will say things like, could we... Perhaps fellowship together. Run. All those things, not really fellowship. Don Whitney, professor um, at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, just talks about how we've kind of mistaken socializing for fellowship. And make no mistake, there's nothing wrong with socializing. It's good to get together, to hang out with people, to have a good time. Great to go to Starbucks, no problem with that. And there might be just the beginning of fellowship or a context for fellowship when we get together. But that's not, that's not what fellowship is. See, fellowship involves mission together. And that's really, really difficult in a culture marked by isolation, individualism, and consumerism. Chuck Swindoll expresses his concern this way. No longer are we a share and share alike people. We're independent cogs and complex corporate structures. We wear earbuds as we jog or do our lawns or walk to class or eat in cafeterias. Our watchword is privacy. Our commitments are short term. Our world is fast adopting the unwritten regulation of the elevator principle. Absolutely no eye contact, talking, smiling, or relating without written permission from the management. The Lone Ranger, once a fantasy hero and more recently a poorly made film, has become our model. We've forgotten what fellowship looks like. But Paul and the Philippian church had a deep sense of fellowship. That word koinonia is used over and over and over again. So let's read Philippians 1, 3 through 8. He says to them, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership, it's koinonia. It's fellowship. 
your partnership or your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers or fellowshippers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. God, we thank you for this picture of fellowship, partnership in the gospel that we receive from Paul's relationship with the Philippian church. And I thank you, God, for how fellowship is happening in our body, even in the simplest ways of us placing bags of groceries behind our cars so that people who might not be able to eat can eat in our community. And I thank you, God, that just like the Philippian church did with Paul in prison, we enjoy fellowship, partnership in the gospel today with our brothers and sisters and Lebanon and and UAE that we've sent out and folks in the Philippines and in Rwanda and Nigeria and Ukraine and in Paraguay and Peru and all over the world. Partnership in the gospel. God, help us. Help us to see really where fellowship comes from and then where it leads to. For your glory and for our joy and so that the world will know that you're sent by the Father, and that we are your disciples. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So Paul and the church in Philippi have a partnership in the gospel that he's thankful for, he's grateful for. If we looked in Acts chapter 16, we would read about this partnership and how it began, how Paul and his traveling band of missionaries were going into Macedonia and as they came to the outskirts of Philippi, they met a lady named Lydia from Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. That's what people made in her city. And so she had come to Philippi to sell them and there was a small group of believers and she welcomed them in. Then there was a slave girl who was demon-possessed that Paul cast out the demon, and perhaps this girl became part of the church. We're we're not sure. We know she was freed from her bondage. And then Paul and Silas, they're thrown in jail, and there's a jailer who's responsible for keeping them in the stocks. And about midnight, the prison begins to shake, and their bonds are, are, they're free from their stocks, rather. And the jailer's so afraid he's going to kill himself. And Paul says, don't, we're still here. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And he comes to faith in Jesus, he and his family, and they're baptized that night. And so this Philippian church begins, this fellowship begins, and they have a partnership, a fellowship with Paul. So much so that they send this young man, Epaphroditus, to care for Paul. He's writing from a prison. And they send Epaphroditus, and Paul's overwhelmed with gratefulness. Epaphroditus gets so sick, he almost dies. See, they've got a partnership, a real fellowship together. And so what I want to do is is talk today, really more than preach a sermon, have a Bible study on fellowship. Where does it come from and what's its trajectory or where is it headed toward? And so we're going to talk about those things looking throughout the New Testament. First, fellowship like Paul had with the Philippian church and like hopefully we would have as God's people in Temple, Texas, comes from a deep, rich sense of unity in Christ. And that unity in Christ really is going to flow from two things. 
The first is this. It flows from the Trinity as our model. The Trinity as our model. In John 17, we get a little glimpse into what theologians who write big books that hurt your head call intra-Trinitarian love. What in the world is that? I'm glad that you asked. Intra-Trinitarian love is the love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have enjoyed with one another from eternity past and will enjoy with one another throughout all eternity future. The Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, one God, this mysterious thing that we call the Trinity. They've loved one another. And we get a glimpse into this. They've they've been perfectly unified for all eternity, and they will be. And this is what Jesus prays for us, this unity that would bring partnership in the gospel. The night before he dies, he's praying for his disciples, but he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, partnership in the gospel will be successful in that the world will know that God sent Jesus as his son. When we're one as they are one. He goes on, the glory you have given me I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you loved me. Our friend Celestin Musakura in his book on forgiving says this vision of unity in John 17 he says it's a beautiful and inspiring vision but it doesn't happen automatically it doesn't happen automatically though God has made unity possible the practical reality is that it is forged through intentional and unconditional love Through grace and forgiveness, it's a result of hard work cutting against the grain of sin, brokenness, and individualism that plague us. How do we become a people committed to this work? What are the marks of a community of forgiveness? How do we do this? Yes, the Trinity is our model, but what do we do? What do we do? See, the night he died, Jesus wasn't just praying to the Father about his disciples becoming one. He was talking to them about it as well. This fellowship comes from love for one another. We learn from Jesus' example. He laid down his life for his friends. But we also learn from his teaching. See, there are two things in common his prayer in John 17, or one thing in common, rather, his prayer in John 17 has with his teaching to his disciples on that same night. And it's his concern for their unity and what their unity would do in the world. A new command I give to you, That you love one another just as I've loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, isn't that interesting? Doesn't it seem like that's sort of a basic thing that would have been covered early on? After all, he had said there are three kinds of people we need to love. Our brothers, our neighbors, and our enemies. But the night before he died, the night before he died, he says, I'm giving you a new command. And it's to love one another, 
even as I have loved you. Now, why would Jesus need to say this? These guys have lived with him for three years. They've gone where he's gone, ate what he ate, slept where he slept. Surely they've got it down. Aren't they all alike? They're just a bunch of Jewish guys he called to follow him. When in reality, he's got a really diverse group of men. And he understands it's going to be hard fought if they're to remain unified. First two guys you have, you've got John and James who are called the Sons of Thunder. They did not get that nickname because of their gentle spirits. But then it gets worse. You've got Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Basically what Jesus has done is he's taken the IRS guy and the Tea Party guy and said, hey, you're on the same team. So they're going to have some interesting conversations and one's going to move his way and the other's going to move and they're going to come together and love one another. Because by the way, men, this is how the world will know. Here's my plan for global evangelization. Here's how they'll know you're really my disciples. If you love one another even as I have loved you. We'll talk about what that looks like in just a bit. See, unity, unity matters to Jesus. The night before he died, it was on his mind. And it's of utmost importance. It's of utmost importance. Why is it so important and how important is the doctrine of unity? See, I grew up in a tradition where doctrine and unity typically weren't in the same sentence. And people would pit doctrine against Unity. That's a strange sort of thing to do. It's really not helpful because they're like two sides of the same coin. People who love doctrine love unity. And people who love unity are going to love doctrine because the Bible speaks a lot about unity. So how important is it? Let's just have a quick Bible study and look at what the Scripture says. We'll start in the Old Testament and Psalms. We're going to look at one verse in Psalms. We could look at many. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Verse 2 of this chapter says, It's like the oil that flows down Aaron's beard. Now Aaron is Moses' brother. He was the priest. And he would be anointed with oil for service. And that oil would flow down his beard. It's an overflow of anointing. You want anointing on your life. It's a word that we use a lot in evangelical circles. Well, loving one another. That is anointed. Let's jump to the New Testament. We've looked at these verses that Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. That's how you're also to love one another, so that people will know that you're my disciples. Again, his prayer, not for these only, but those who would believe because of their words, that they would be one, so the world would believe. Again, that they would be one. That the world would know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Then Paul's writings, almost every book in Paul's writings. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Then to the Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. That agree, it's, it's like playing in a symphony together. It's not necessarily unison, but it's in harmony together. 
And that there be no divisions among you, but that you'd be be united in the same mind and same judgment. So he says that to the Romans, to the Corinthians, next book, Galatians, for the whole law, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So Galatians and Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore as a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk. That's the word peripateo. It's not yeah, 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 I love unity, right? We get that, we understand, we need to have it down. It's daily, the way that you live. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Well, how do we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, the calling to which we've been called? With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Then to the Philippians, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, there's that word again, koinonia, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect Harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Now he, he's pleased with the Thessalonian church. Twice he speaks of their love for one another. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. He says it to him again. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. It's right because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And in James, James says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And see then, when Paul speaks to pastors, he doesn't use the word unity, but he warns them about divisions. He says to Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Then to Titus, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable and they're worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, self-condemned. See, unity is so important because it's unity that will distinguish us in the world as those who follow Jesus. It will distinguish us as those who follow Jesus. See, John Wesley said there is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. So how do we get this fellowship and what does it lead to? 
We're going to talk about our core values just a little bit. How do we get this fellowship? And then what does it lead to? Well, what core value really is fellowship related to? Our core values are surrender, community, and mission. So is fellowship connected to the core value of surrender or community or mission? Which one? I can't hear you. Yes is the answer. That's right. See, fellowship is connected to surrender, community, and mission. Fellowship is going to start with surrender. It's displayed in community. And then we carry on as a community on mission. As love is our ultimate apologetic, as Francis Schaeffer has told us. So it starts with surrender to Jesus. It starts with surrender to Jesus. Why? Because you can't have fellowship with God's people if you don't have fellowship with Jesus. Let's look in 1 John together. Turn over in the backs of your Bibles. Because it starts with surrender to Jesus, but then where does that surrender lead us? It's important for us to see it. It's surrender to who Jesus is. First John 1, the apostle is telling the church he's writing to, look, I'm, I'm an eyewitness. We've seen this. Our hands have handled him. We, we're eyewitnesses of the work he did, of his death and his resurrection. And then he says in verse 3, that which we have seen, heard, we proclaim to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This fellowship, he's writing to them about it so that their joy would be complete. And then he says in verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. Remember that phrase, walk in darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Well, what's the marker? What's the marker of a people who are walking in the light versus a people who are walking in darkness? Well, let's continue in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil. And his brother's righteous. So do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love our brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So what's the mark of someone who's been transformed by the blood of Jesus. It's not that this saves you, but what's the mark of it? It's love for other people. It's love for other people. Well, what is this, Chase? Just a sloppy, agape fast? No. Here's what that love looks like. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others. So loving others, having real, authentic Christian fellowship, is all about surrender. Because the way to love is to lay down your life for others. 
is to lay down your life for others. And Jesus is our model and he commands it as our Lord. First John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the covering for our sin. How did He cover our sins? By laying down His life in love and raising up again. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. That is a phenomenal sentence. No one's ever seen God. But through our coming to one another, to serve one another and love one another, God abides in us and His love is then made perfect in us. Then He closes chapter 4. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. See, loving people, being in fellowship with people is all about surrendering to Jesus. Does anybody in this room who's lived long enough knows that loving people consistently is going to be difficult? Because you're an imperfect person laying down your life for other imperfect people. But that's exactly what distinguishes God's people from people who are not God's people. It's surrender, but it's also community. If we're going to have fellowship, we've got to take serious this community. This picture of Paul in this church where they're traveling, sending someone to care for him. They've given him a gift to help the poor that he's ministering to. They're praying for him. They've got partnership in the gospel. It's a compelling thing. So don't, we, don't we all want a sense of belonging that these are my people? I, I know it's compelling to me. My, my wife and I were working with some other folks to put together a a Christmas party for all the foster kids in our, in our area. And as we did that, one of the groups that came with us was a small group that they said, we want to do this together. And it was so encouraging just to see how they came to serve together, how you could tell they knew one another and still loved one another. They cared for one another and they cared for people together. See, we need community. And in our culture... It'll be a hard-fought prize to have true, authentic Christian fellowship. We've got privacy fences. We stay inside because of air conditioning. And this week, we probably had a good reason to stay inside. I was talking to Charlie Stoner. He and his wife Vivian were missionaries for 38 years to Brazil. Now they're back serving here, the church that sent them out. And I asked Charlie about four months after he got home, what did he miss most about Brazil. And he said, probably the lack of air conditioning. I said, no, Charlie. I said, what did you miss most? He said, you know, there's no air conditioning there. So you really had to get out on your front porch and people would come by and there's great opportunity to visit. So for us, we'll have to work hard to get community. And there are great opportunities for it. But do we recognize that we need it? Lots of folks recognize that we need it. J.I. Packer says we should not therefore think of our 
fellowship with other Christians is a luxury, an optional addition to the exercise of private devotion. We should recognize rather that such fellowship is a spiritual necessity. For God has made us in such a way that our fellowship with himself is fed by our fellowship with fellow Christians. It requires us to be so fed constantly for its own deepening and enrichment. No one, one author says, is strong enough to bear his burdens alone. As I was looking through Gary's card, I was struck by how his cards, he's got this catalog of cards for illustrations. And over and over and over, there's this Christian writer, Christian writer, fellowship matters, unity matters, this is so important, it's not optional. And then I came across this one. And I was struck not by the statement, but by who said it. Bertrand Russell, a godless man, an atheist philosopher gets it. When he says, when it comes to how we're going to live our lives, it's either coexistence or no existence. You can't make it on your own. You can't make it on your own. And when you do life long enough, you recognize we need one another. See, it's surrender and then it's community. But then it's community on mission. And now we're done with our intro and we can come back to our text, Philippians 1.5. He says, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the first day. From the first day for your partnership until even now. Is there a community on mission? There are a community on mission. And I'll tell you how that happened. I'll tell you how that happened. Because see, you can go to a small group, to a Sunday school class, to Alpha, to CR. And you can find fellowship there, community on mission. You can also go to Alpha. You can go to a small group. You can go to a Sunday school class. Lots of them are kicking off right now. You can go to CR. You cannot find fellowship there. And I I can tell you the difference in whether or not you will find fellowship there. The difference is in how you go. If you go as a consumer, what can I get out of this? How can this help me? See, we live in a culture where sometimes we, we talk about ourselves all the time. And we're like those little dolls with strings that you pull. And when you pull the string... What you hear in our culture over and over and over is, what about me? What about me? What about me? And if we go like that, we probably will not find fellowship. But if we go as a servant, because this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for others. See, if you go as a servant, college students, if you go on Wednesday nights to see life and get plugged into those life groups and you wonder, how can I serve and love people here? You'll find amazing fellowship. If you go as a consumer, you might just leave dissatisfied. See, when I think about going as servants and finding fellowship, I think about a couple of things. I think about an old couple in our church. I won't tell you who they are so they won't know I'm calling them old. They, They serve in the prison in Gatesville. They work with the ladies there. And, you know, when they went to that prison... I don't think they were going looking for fellowship. They were going asking the question, how can I serve? How can we help? 
how can we love these ladies? But when I talk to them about their time there, they don't tell me how they've served or how they've helped. They tell me about this great sense of fellowship that they've found. It's a partnership in the gospel. And then they tell me about how these incarcerated ladies pray for us as a church when we meet together, that God would move in our midst. And when I think about partnership in the gospel, I think about a couple of guys in our body that are as different as different could be. Their names are Jeff and John. They both lead ministries. Jeff is an entrepreneur. He's a businessman. John is a biker. John has a beard that would make the men from Duck Dynasty proud. (laughs) Jeff could wash his face with Rogaine and not grow facial hair. They're two different guys, but they recognize that we're one body on mission together. And man, God is using them and their families to impact this community in amazing ways to see people come to faith because they recognize that this community... It's a community of servants. It's a community of servants. For you, it could look all kinds of different ways. It might be that you as a small group would serve this prison ministry I mentioned. It might be that you go like a friend of mine does to Hope Pregnancy Center and give parenting classes to folks who have decided boldly to keep their children, but maybe they've grown up in a context where there's been a really poor parenting model or no parenting model at all. And so... So my friend Steve helps these folks understand what does it look like to parent in a loving way that honors Jesus. Or my friend Pam who goes to Christian Farms Treehouse and works with men who are there recovering from addiction and loves them and teaches them, shares with them. Or maybe it's going to CLTC and seeing some of this food that we've dropped and loving people there, helping folks out there. Maybe it's like a group of ladies who gathers and they minister to single moms in our community, sharing the gospel with them. Maybe it's serving on a Sunday morning that you as a small group would get together. And you say, you know what? Between our four couples, we could each take one week and we could fill a Sunday school class for the whole year. It just means 12 weeks a year for each family. We could do that. Maybe it's coming to family night. Maybe it's saying, you know what? I think I'll lead a small group. We're having a training starting the end of September and there's information out back about our small groups. See, people with a heart for God have a heart for people. Well, no, 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 Chase. See, I've got a heart for God, but He hadn't really given me a heart for people. Well, you don't get to define what a heart for God looks like. Jesus defines that. By this they'll know that you're my disciples. By your love for one Another. People with a heart for God have a heart for people. See, Francis Schaeffer said, One day we as God's people will gather together for eternity and will sing God's praises with perfection. But even today, individually and corporately, we're not just called to sing the doxology, but to be the doxology. We're not just called to sing it, we're called to be it. Loving one another. John Dansby is one of the community pastors at Austin Stone. And he says, it is the will of God for the family of God to be on mission with God together. It's the will of God 
for the family of God to be on mission with God together. So if your vision of what it looks like to be a Christian is to show up on Sunday morning and then head out, you're just missing the will of God for you. Now we'll serve you, we'll minister to you, and we'll love you well. But you're just missing out. It's the will of God for the family of God to be on mission with God together. Don't you want that? To be a part of a people you belong to, who belong to Jesus, and who are being the light of the world by loving one another in the midst of a generation that's forgotten what it looks like to love well. Let's pray. Jesus, I just want to humbly echo your prayer that we might fully intend to be who you intended for us to be, that we would be one, even as you and the Father are one, so that the world would believe that the Father sent you. And God, in a a room like this, there's just this real tragedy that there are people who won't talk to one another because of division among them. So God, I pray that where it needs to take place, that forgiveness would take place that repentance would take place. And God, that you would give us a self-sacrificing love for one another so that the world will know we're your disciples. And God, I pray that we would be in your will as your family on mission together and that our community would be transformed by the love that we have for one another, by the unity that we share as people who are in Christ. As we go our way, Lord, help us to be light as we enjoy you and love people well. In Jesus' name, amen. And you're dismissed.